Well, it's uh, my pleasure to introduce to you our guest speaker this morning, uh, Steve Christian. Steve and Connie, uh, his wife, uh, just moved permanently uh, to Clarksville just in the very recent weeks. A very strange time uh, to make a move and, and a strange season, of course, to get settled. And I, I'm sure they've got a, a story or two to tell about the complications that came with all of that and house buying in the midst of a pandemic. Um, Steve's uh, background, he is a retired PCA pastor with uh, no little bit of experience under his belt, and I'm looking forward in the months, years to come, getting to know him and learning from him. That said, I think it's fair to say his great claim to fame in this community is the fact that he is the father of Emily Tregesser, and that's really what brings him here, right? That and the grandkids. That and the grandkids. It's, 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 not, it's not you guys. It's not me. It's, it, it's not really, it's, it's that. It's that, and I, I get it, and that's awesome. I'm glad you're here. Thank you, sir. Oh, wrap up about one. That'll be fine. <laughs> one? Yeah. <laughs> about five. Okay. <laughs> I guess we'll have to go there. Uh, thank you, Richard. Let's uh, begin with prayer. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Uh, last fall, my wife and I had the privilege of spending three months in southern France where um, we went to help uh, one of the families, uh, the sent ones, from our former church in Louisville. And while we were there, we helped out. And they worked among the North African people in the city. And while we were there, we helped out with things like the English classes. Uh, we helped out um, with the special events. We helped out with tutoring. And we also went to their church and attended their church. And it just so happened that the pastor of their church uh, had a sermon series that exactly overlapped the time that we were there, those three months. And we weren't there very long. We found out that he was going to be preaching from the book of Revelation. And I thought to myself, oh, brother, I mean, not only are the sermons in French, but they're also on the book of Revelation. This is going to be really hard. Well, it wasn't as hard as we thought it would be. In the end, we um, ended up uh, understanding maybe 50 to 70% of, of what he said. Uh, and during the weeks, we would uh, kind of read ahead. We'd, we'd, we'd read the next chapter or two in, in English, and we'd read it in French. And I also had my Greek New Testament along with me, so I read it in that. And so we wanted to be prepared for what the preacher said and, and what was being delivered. Um, and as time went on, I came to say, find myself saying, this is the best series on Revelation I have ever heard in my life, even though we didn't understand it all. It just really touched us. And I found that it gave me a confidence, a renewed confidence, not in myself, but a confidence in Jesus Christ. And as um, somebody said in one of the prayers earlier, we believe that God is in control of all things, but sometimes it's hard to believe. While we were there in France, 
Um, we try to keep up with current events here at home. And, and as you know, last fall was a, a, a very tough time in our country. A lot of hostility going on, a lot of polarization. And over on the continent, it was a time when uh, the whole issue of Brexit uh, was rising up. And there's even talk that Brexit might rekindle some of the embers of the hostility between uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland. In France, uh, every Saturday, there were the protests by the, um, the yellow vests, the les, les gilets jaunes. And uh, in fact, uh, one Saturday, uh, our pétanque game got tear gassed because of them. But that's a story for another time. Uh, but what this um, deep dive into Revelation at that time did was gave us that confidence that really Jesus Christ is the one who is in control of all things. He is the one who is the Lord of history. And that's something that we need to apprehend by faith, as is the case with all of the other teachings of Scripture. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to give a few ways by which we might grow in our confidence that Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. Now, as I kept uh, diving into Revelation while there, and not only while there, but after we came back, uh, I found that there was another grand theme to the book of Revelation, one that maybe doesn't get as much press or notice or attention as other themes. And that is the fact that the book of Revelation calls us, calls us to a certain kind of living. It calls us uh, to perseverance or to patiently endure. And in fact, uh, Revelation 14, 12 uh, states that pretty much. Here is the perseverance or the patient endurance of the saints, those who keep the commands of God and hold to faith in Jesus. So not only is Jesus Christ in control of all history, but because that's true, what that means is that we are able, we are compelled to live that life which obeys God's commands and keeps a hold of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, let's read together, look together in Revelation chapter 1. I'll read the entire thing. You can follow along with me um, in whatever way that you are most comfortable with. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like a sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus directs the course of history, even up until its final consummation. So persevere in keeping his commands and holding on your faith to him. How can we do that? What are some ways by which we can do that? Well, in order to do that, let's start where John started, which would be not at verse 1, but at verse 9. Now, John didn't wake up one morning and say, you know, I think I'm going to start work today on that graphic novel that I've had in mind all these years. That, he didn't set out to write the book of Revelation on his own. He was on this small rocky island, probably because he was exiled there uh, for his role as a Christian uh, prophet, and he saw a vision. He was in the spirit. That is, the spirit grabbed hold of him, and the spirit changed his perception from the normal, from the natural, to the supernatural. And boy, did he see a vision or visions. Forty-four times in the book of Revelation, John says, and I saw. And 27 times he said, and I heard. And some of his grammar, uh, you know, if you're able to see it, you, you could tell that John is just struggling to get words out. But that's what he gives us. He gives us these 
vision. And it comes in a letter to the churches. And after he sees the vision and they're all done, then he goes back and he writes the introduction. He writes the first part of chapter 1. So let's start there in, in verse 9, where John started. All of a sudden, he's caught up in the Spirit. And the first way that I want to suggest to you that you can have confidence in Jesus as the one who directs the course of history is by seeing the glorified Jesus. See the glorified Jesus. Now, he hears this voice, and it catches his attention. It's like a trumpet, he says, and this voice says, write that, that which you see in a book and send it to the churches. And he turns around, and he sees this figure among seven golden lampstands. Now, a lampstand isn't a candlestick. It's just a stand on which you hang a lamp. And in those days, they may have had just a few lamps, and they would take the lamp around from place to place in the house, and they hang it on a lampstand wherever they needed. So the lampstand was a, a holder for the lamp. And he sees this figure, and what a figure. What a person. And we read the description there. You saw how many times John used the similes, uh, as or like. He was like this. His feet were like this. His eyes were like this. And uh, somebody, uh, one of the commentators on Revelation said that to try to explain all of these different elements uh, would be to unweave the rainbow. But I do want to point out just a couple of them. One is that he said, there was a sword, a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The mouth is the instrument or the organ of speech. A sword is an instrument of death. And so by this, he's saying that this is the judge. This is the one who has the power to speak condemnation or acquittal. The other thing I'd like to point out is that it says about him at the very end, his appearance was like the sun, shining in all of its power. You, know, you can't even look upon the sun. You, and he said, I couldn't look at this person. In fact, I fell down like a dead man. Now, maybe later on in his life, or not too long after that, I'm sure John thought to himself, you know, I've heard of these kind of things before. And visions like this were not unknown in the Old Testament. Isaiah in chapter 6 said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord lifted up, high and exalted, and his train filled the temple. And Isaiah said, Woe is me. Ezekiel chapter 1, you might want to turn there. Uh, I'm going to read uh, a few verses from Ezekiel chapter 1. He also saw a vision, and in some ways John patterns his own prophetic ministry after that of Ezekiel. Notice as we read these verses from one, chapter 1, verse 26 on, how many times Ezekiel uses the word likeness or appearance, how he struggles to explain what it is that he saw. And above the expanse over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne 
was a likeness with a human appearance, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in this cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, or Yahweh, with the name of God in the Old Testament. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. Daniel, who is another favorite of John's, had a similar vision, and this is found in Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. In verse 9, then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. John also must have thought about his own experience where he and uh, Peter and his brother James went up onto the mountain and it said that Jesus was transfigured before them. And his, his face was white, his clothing became white, and they fell to the ground and they couldn't look upon it. John's colleague Paul had the similar experience where when he was on the road to Damascus, the great light shone around him and Paul fell to the ground. Now, it's, it's, it's important for us to see something here in all of these descriptions of the Almighty, which are a lot alike. And that is, the, this is not just a costume that Jesus put on to capture John's attention. What John saw was Jesus as he really is, but in the supernatural world. Paul talks about the seen world and the unseen world, the temporal and the eternal. And what John saw was what Jesus really looks like on the other side, as best he could describe it, which admittedly was difficult for him. In, uh, uh, in the uh, screw tape letters, um, screw tape is writing one of the letters to Wormwood and telling Wormwood how he can uh, disrupt the prayers of those who follow Jesus. And one of the ways he says is that, take account of the fact that they are not just spirit, but they are body and spirit. And so Screwtape says to Wormwood, the humans do not start from that direct perception of him, that is God, which we unhappily cannot avoid. 
They have never known that ghastly luminosity, that stabbing and searing glare which makes the background of permanent pain to our lives. What Lewis was trying to describe there was what the appearance of the divine spirit of God Almighty must be to them who are other spirits. Another uh, writer who uh, tried to capture this was um, J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. And in the book, not, not the movie, the book, this is the real deal, the book, you know. Um, after Frodo's flight to, to the Ford and he wakes up uh, in the house of Gandalf and he's in the house of Elrond and he's talking with Gandalf and they're talking about his flight to the Ford, um, Gandalf says to him, the elves may fear the Dark Lord, and they may fly before him, but never again will they listen to him or serve him. And here in Rivendell there live still some of his chief, chief foes, the elven wise, lords of the Eldar from beyond the furthest seas. They do not fear the ringwraith, for those who have dwelt in the blessed realm live at once in both worlds, and against both the seen and the unseen, they have great power. And Frodo said, I thought that I saw a white figure that shone and did not grow dim like the others. Was that Glorfindel then? Gandalf replied, Yes, you saw him for a moment as he is on the other side, one of the mighty of the firstborn. He is an elf lord of a house of princes. There was uh, Tolkien's attempt to explain what it must be like to, have, to be seen on both the seen world and on the unseen world. It's important for us to see that Jesus is this awesome, even frightful, terrifying person. Uh, in the movie um, Talladega Nights, uh, Ricky Bobby is saying grace before a meal. And he prays to baby Jesus. And his wife says, come on, get with it. You know, you don't have to talk about, you don't have to pray to baby Jesus all the time. And Ricky Bobby said, I like to think of Jesus as baby Jesus. Well, you know, babies are sweet and adorable, and I'm sure that baby Jesus was sweet and adorable too. But that's not really a very terrifying picture. But there has to be a sense in which Jesus is something or someone who is much more than what we are, who's even terrifying. And, and, and I need to say that if you have never read carefully some of the things that Jesus has said, try starting in the book of Luke. If you've never really read some of the things that he said or some of the things that are said about him and haven't been scared, then you need to read again because our Lord is an awesome, frightful, terrifying person if we were ever to see him as he really is. And that's how one way in which we can have confidence that he is the one who directs the course of history because he is this great and powerful warrior 
on the other side. Now, the second way, though, is to experience the presence of the glorified Jesus. And John says he fell as though he fell on his face as though he were dead. And he said that this one, like the Son of Man, put his hand upon him and said, Do not fear, or fear not. Quite a contrast to go from one who is terrifying, terrifying in his appearance, putting his hand upon him and saying, Fear not. But you know, that's the way it always is. If you read through scripture where the supernatural breaks into the human history and comes in contact with one of God's people, you hear those words, fear not. The angel of the Lord said, fear not, to Gideon when he was threshing wheat in the grape press. The man in the vision in chapter 10 of Daniel, which we read earlier, said to him, Fear not. The angel Gabriel said to Zechariah, Fear not. And to Mary, Fear not. And the angels said to the shepherds out in the field, Fear not. And Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration said to his disciples, Fear not. And when he walked across the water to their boat and they thought they were seeing, seeing a ghost, he said, Fear not. Whenever the supernatural comes and terrifies the people of God, it's always followed up with a fear not. At this point the, where the hand is placed upon John, uh, th this, this person identifies himself. And he says, I am the first and the last, the living one. I am the first and the last. You know, if you read Isaiah in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 48, you'll see the Lord, Yahweh, saying, I am the first, I am the last, and there is none other. And so this person, this one like the Son of Man, comes to John and puts his hand upon him and identifies himself with the deity. He said, I am the living one. And of course, again, all through Isaiah, God is identified as the living God. He says, I was dead, but now I'm alive. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I live forever and ever. And he identifies himself with a deity, but as one who has tasted of death. And of course, by this time, John had to know, you know to whom he was speaking. Finally, he said, I hold the keys to death and Hades. And of course, because Jesus was dead and is now alive, he can say, I am the one who's master over death. I am the one who's master over the grave. I am the master over all that you might think is bad. He gives John these words of comfort, and, and they're in the the stars and in the lampstands. Now, uh, Jesus says, he gives the interpretation there in verse uh, 20, the lampstands are the seven churches. And as I said before, the lampstand is what you put on the floor and you hang on it, the lamp. And so in this sense, the church as the lampstand, what that means is that the church is the one 
who, uh, through the Holy Spirit, because the, the lamp is the Holy Spirit, shines the light into the world. The, the church is the Holy Spirit's way of shining into this dark world. And what we saw was the Son of Man walking in the midst of the lamps and in the midst of the churches, those who shine the light of God into the world. But then he also says that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And this one is more difficult. Uh, you, you, you'll get as many opinions as what the angels mean as you'll get uh, persons giving the opinion. It's just something hard to you know, figure out what, does the, what do the angels mean. But everybody seems to come to this one conclusion, though, is that the angels stand for or are a surrogate for the churches, so that there is an angel for each church. There is a surrogate. There is a representative for each church. That are, it's called an angel. And so what we can say is that the angel represents the churches as corporate entities. So we have these two pictures of the church, one as the, as the uh, place where the spirit dwells, and the other as a corporate or a unit. And Jesus, the Son of Man, he walks in our midst, and he holds us in his right hand. And those were meant to be words of comfort to John. I, the, the first and the last, the living one, I'm walking in your midst. I'm holding you in my hand. I'm protecting you, and I'm with you. It's at this point, though, that John is given a commission to write. Actually, he's given two commissions to write. One is in verse, um, verse 11, write what you see in a book. Now, that's write what you see, write that which you see. It's singular, present. And then in verse 20, or in verse 19, write, therefore, the things, the things which, plural, so verse 11 is singular, write which you, that which you see. Verse 19, write the things which you have seen and will see. And I think what is going on here is that, is that he, John's being told, write everything. Don't leave anything out. And John was true to that command. In fact, you read in, verse, in chapter 10, he's starting to write stuff down and and the angel says to him, wait a minute, John, don't write that part. Leave that part out. But everything else, write it all. And so he gives, he's been given this commission to write. And so what comes next are the messages to these seven churches. And then that's followed up with the rest of John's visions. Now, if you look through the book of Revelation, almost all of the imperatives, that is the commands, the exhortations, the, the verbs that say, do this, almost all of the imperatives are found in chapters 2 and 3. There are a few after that, but almost all of them are in 2 or 3. And so what we have here is uh, kind of in a broad outline of the book. We have an introduction to the Son of Man who is the victor. We have these messages to the churches where there are commands and exhortation, and then we have these visions, most of which are about coming judgment. 
which kind of give a reason why the churches should follow the commands because of the judgments that are to come. Now we're going to go back to where the churches start, which would be at verse 1. Because they're going to get this letter, and they're going to start reading the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the third way in which you can have confidence that Jesus Christ is the Lord of history is this. Hear the announcement of his rule. He writes these things down. Notice verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There are two groups here, not three, two groups. The one who reads aloud, and those who hear and keep. Not three groups, two groups. The one who reads aloud, and the, one who, the ones who hear and keep. And this kind of presupposes a church setting. And not everybody has, back then, their own copy of the scripture. In fact, in a church, there may have been just one copy of the scripture. So one person read, and everybody else heard, but they also had to keep. And the blessing is for those who hear and keep. The blessing isn't for those who figure out the number of the mark of the beast. The, number, the blessing isn't for those who figure out the, the seven heads, the, all the crowns and all this stuff. The blessing is for those who hear and keep, who obey. Yes, Jesus is the one who is, directs history, and therefore we obey him. In, the, in these first few verses, we hear the announcement of his rule in, in verse uh, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, this ruler of the kings of the earth, it's kind of taken from, uh, it's a riff on Psalm 89, where um, the psalmist is talking about David, but he's really talking about great David's greater son. And he talks about how there is the anointed one coming, and he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And when we say that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean that he is the ruler and that there is no other. Jesus is the one who directs the course of history. It's not the leader of Russia. It's not the leader of China. It's not one of the Middle Eastern dictators. It's not the leader of our country. It's not a political party. It's not a secret society like the Illuminati. It's Jesus who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the ruler. And the kings of the earth, it's a, the phrase is used throughout the scripture of those who are opposed to Christ. When the trumpets are blown, the, the, the judgments that you read later on, and it comes to the seventh trumpet being blown, the, the announcement is made, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. He doesn't say the kingdoms, plural, of this world. He says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And that means that 
There's Jesus, and there's everybody else. The fact that he's the ruler of the kings of the earth also means that Jesus is on his side. There's an interesting, there's an interesting story in Joshua. Uh, they're about to cross the Jordan, the Jordan River, and, and God says to Joshua, Joshua, today I'm going to begin to exalt you in the eyes of Israel. And then in the next chapter, it says that God did that. He exalted Joshua in the eyes of Israel. And then in the next chapter after that, he's out walking around, and he sees someone with a sword in his hand, and Joshua walks up to him, and he says, whose side are you on? Are you on our side, or are you on the side of the nations around? And he says, neither. But I am come as the captain of the armies of God. And Jesus isn't on anybody's side. It does, if, if you're thinking about a conflict between two countries, he's not on either side. If you're thinking about a conflict between two parties in our, or three or four parties in our own country or in any other country, he's not on anybody's side. Jesus is on his side and on his side alone, and he is directing history according to where he wants it to go. Note also in, verse, uh, in Revelation chapter 1, where we're hearing the announcement of the rule in verse... Um, Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even though who, who pierced him. And this is an obvious allusion to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has another vision, and he sees the Ancient of Days, and he sees one coming up to the Ancient of Days and being uh, granted a kingdom. And um, R.T. France makes a good uh, case for that uh, scene in Daniel 7 being a reference to Jesus' ascension. That after he left, he ascended into heaven where he was seated on the right hand of God. And, and the idea is that Daniel 7 is a reference to that ascension and taking into heavenly glory. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, Daniel 7, him coming on the clouds, is also used not only for his, the inauguration of his reign, but also for the consummation of reign when he comes at his parousia. But he's coming with the clouds because he is the son of man and he is the one who's been given the eternal kingdom. I want to conclude by referring again to Daniel's vision. In chapter 7, the first part of the, the chapter is about his vision. And the last part of the chapter is about the interpretation of the vision that's given to him by the angel. And in the vision, the Son of Man comes and is led into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and he is given a kingdom, a kingdom that lasts forever and ever and ever. In the interpretation of the vision, though, the kingdom is given not to the Son of Man, but to the saints to those who follow the Son of Man, to his holy ones. It's only in, in Christ that we conquer. Only as we are united to Christ 
that we conquer. And, and this, this vision of Daniel's was one of his ways of talking about being united to Christ. In Jesus Christ, we conquer. You know, it's hard to persevere. It's hard sometimes to keep the commands of God. It's hard to remember that he is in control of all things. But in Christ, that's how we can do it. Being united to Christ by faith is the gospel. And the gospel tells us that we will receive the kingdom because we are in him. It tells us that we can persevere and keep the commands of God. It tells us that we can maintain our faith in Christ through all kinds of hardship. He is the one who directs the course of history. So persevere in keeping his commands and in holding to your faith in him. Let's pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, who was the first faithful witness, the one who testified to the truth in you, the one who held fast to his confession. Father, may we see Jesus. May we see him in all of his splendor and glory, and may we learn after we've been terrified not to fear because he is with us and he holds on to us. We thank you in his name. Amen.